0: I don't have any pictures of big fish to show you, but I can show you this. (laughs) What's it say? Peace. Joy. Guilt. Have no fear. I'm going to make guilt disappear. Peace. Joy. Joy. That's the scary thing, but don't worry. (laughs) I'm going to make guilt disappear. Are you watching this, hon? I'm going to make it disappear. Very good. Okay. Yeah, this is for the children. You adults just sort of watch along too. So, so, so here's, here's how I make it disappear. I have a blue folder, and I just place them in like this, and I snap my fingers, and the guilt's gone. I'll show you. What's it say? Peace. Peace. Peace is good. We'll keep peace. Uh, what's it say? Joy. Joy is good. We'll keep joy. What's left? Skill. Nope. it's gone, see? Show you. It's amazing. It's gone. There's nothing over here in the folder either. See, it's gone. It's amazing how well that works. Now, people aren't always convinced it's gone. In fact, now and then, I've had kids tell me to turn the card around, and then you just have ENOG, so it doesn't change a thing. say it... Well, obviously, this isn't one of my better tricks. LAUGHTER but it makes a great point. <laughs> if, if some human being tries to tell you that he or she can take your guilt away, don't believe him. No human being can take your guilt away, can they? No. No, only Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who takes our guilt away. And if we know who Jesus is, we're going to have our peace, we're going to have our joy, but our guilt's going to be gone. And that is a very reason to have some great excitement about life, the fact that we can be forgiven, the fact that we can move into the future knowing we are free by way of God's grace. It's time for the message. We always have a little message before the first message. You can back up the slides just a little bit there. I think you might, or is that the first one I have for you? There should be a title slide up there, and if not, there you go. There we go. First Kings chapter 19 verses 19 through 21, is where we're going to start today. The title of this message is Who is Next? I recently came across an article titled Five Signs of an Unhealthy Church. I'm happy to say I do not believe any of these signs apply to this church, but I thought you might be interested in the signs the author listed. Here we go. Number one, leadership has no clear vision. Number two, Leadership can never be challenged. Number three, people are comfortable but not challenged. Number four, members are content to be pew warmers. Number five, outreach is not planned nor preached. If I was putting together my own list of signs of an unhealthy church, and I want to make it clear that's not my list there, that's someone else's, but if I was putting together my own list One thing not on that list, which most assuredly would be on my list, is this. Only one generation of people represented. Think about it. There's something wrong with the church, which is almost entirely composed of people who are in the same age group. Now, I know there can be an exception to this. For example, if you live in a retirement community and everybody there is over 55 years of age then a church for that community would be mainly composed of people 55 years of age and older. You understand that. But apart from circumstance like that, a church should have a good representation of all age groups that are present in the local community. If there are young families in the local community, there should be young families in the church. If there are old people in the local community, there should be old people in the church. If there are children in the community, there should be children in the church. If there are 40-something and 50-something people in the local community, then there ought to be 40-somethings and 50-somethings in the church. Now, as obvious as this is. As Mary and I have traveled the country over the past many years, I have been amazed and I am yet amazed by the number of congregations we have seen which in their midst do not have a representation of various generations. In particular, many churches are losing their young people. There are other churches which are not only losing their young people but also the 20 and 30 and 40-somethings. Even though they don't live in a retirement community, if you visit the church, you assume it must be a retirement community. And at the other end of the spectrum, I have seen churches who work so hard to be current and tuned into popular culture that everyone in the church seems to be 30 years of age and younger. There are some churches like that, and I believe this, too, is a problem. Why is it a bad thing? Because Christians have a mandate to pass faith and ministry from one generation to the next. Will you please listen to that as I say it again? Christians have a mandate to pass faith and ministry from one generation to the next. There are many scripture texts which speak of this. A simple one is Titus chapter 2 verses 2 through 6. It says teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. What are these verses talking about? A church where older people minister to younger people and pass on to them the truths and ways of the faith. As well, a church where older people themselves are being taught to live the way that they should live. That's the way it's supposed to be. And if there are not multi-generations in a church, older people and younger people, then the kind of thing Titus 2, 2 through 6 is talking about cannot happen. This means churches must make an effort to reach all ages with ministry and to include all ages in ministry. To speak specifically to this congregation, I'm talking to you, Southern Hills Evangelical Free Church. I hope you know how wonderful it is that in this place, children, youth, young couples, middle-aged people, and older people are all present. Do you realize what a blessing this is? It speaks to the spiritual health of this church, and it also keeps a major responsibility right in front of our eyes. If the Lord has not yet returned and many years pass by, the older ones in this church can see right now what is going. this church is going to be in the future by way of the spiritual investment being made right now in the younger generation, which is the next generation, which is here. Usually in the second service, we have the front rows filled with young people. I hope in the second service, when I mention them, you applaud. You should. What a wonderful thing it is to know that the young people are here. The question is, what are we doing about this? And I know the church is doing much to minister to youth. I praise God for your ministry to them. But I also believe we must challenge ourselves to never allow the the necessity of the ministry to the next generation to be minimized or compromised. And this brings us back to the prophet Elijah. Today's message is the final one in our series on his life. Lord willing, next week, I will have a different message, something special for you. is my last Sunday with you. But this week, our study of Elijah concludes, and it concludes the way it should. And that is with a lesson as to how his work passed on to the next generation. The lesson starts with the passing of the mantle. 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 19 is where we are as far as the scripture text goes. I'm going to read that verse. It's so, so Elijah went from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat. He was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Now let's review the situation. Last Last week we looked at a major point of failure in Elijah's life. He followed fear rather than faith. He allowed himself to become depressed. He lost sight of the true nature of God. Things became so bad, he wanted to die. God dealt with him in a gentle way. God led Elijah to see that his evaluation of the situation was unwarranted and it was wrong. In the process of providing Elijah with this revelation, the Lord said to Elijah that he was to anoint a new prophet to take his place. The new prophet would be a man by the name of Elisha. This meant the work of the prophet would carry on to the next generation. It was wonderfully encouraging news. With his head on straight again and with himself back in action to do God's work, Elijah headed out to find Elisha. As we see in verse 19, Elijah found Elisha at work. And I think it's important to give attention to the fact that through his word, God wants us to know Elisha was a working man. He was not sitting under a tree somewhere pondering, what shall I do with my life? Instead, he was already ambitious in taking action. And this is something the younger generation of believers need to understand. And that is, in preparation for responsibility and opportunity, which someday will be passed on to you, there's a need to develop a good work ethic and personal disciplines now. Get a job. Step into various tasks and help you grow in experience. Do things that help you develop character, which will prepare you for whatever God is going to bring your way in the future. Elisha was out working in the field, he was plowing with a yoke of oxen. The wording of the text means there were 12 yoke of oxen at work at the same time. Now maybe you've driven by a giant farming operation here in South Dakota and you've seen several several tractors out in the field at the same time lined up in such a way that they work a large tract of land at once. One's got one sort of stretch going and the next one's above it and the next one's above it like that. Well, in the ancient days, to quickly plow up a huge tract of land, they would put a number of yoked oxen out in the field all at the same time and line them up to move forward while next to each other. So they were taking a large stretch of land and plowing it up at once. Well, this is what was happening when Elijah came on the scene. A big job was being done. Behind 11 pair of oxen, other people were working. Behind the twelfth pair, Elisha was working too. Elijah crossed over the portion of the field that he had to cross to get to Elisha. Once near him, there in the middle of the field, which was probably a dusty and dirty situation, he cast his mantle upon Elisha. Now to us, this seems like a weird thing to do. Suppose our church's youth group decided as a fundraiser to mow a very large tract of grass in a local park. Twelve of the young men from our church are out there. Each one has his own lawnmower. They're all mowing this big chunk of grass at the same time. I happen to drive by while they're doing it. I'm on my way to preach somewhere. I'm wearing my coat and tie. I stop the vehicle, get out, walk across the grass to one of the young men who's pushing a young lawnmower. I take off my suit coat and I put it on him. His hands are on the lawnmower. He is a sweaty teenager. Anyone who would see me do this would think, what in the world is Dwayne doing? Has he lost his mind? Has his train jumped the track? Are there screen doors on his submarine? Did the tacos fall out of his combination plate? I mean, what, why is he doing this? In our time and culture, this action would not make any sense. But in the time and culture of Elijah and Eli Shah, it did make sense. A mantle, specifically one made of animal hair, was the uniform of a prophet. In the United States Army, there's a special forces unit known as the Green Beret. They're called the Green Beret because they wear a cap, a beret, a green one. It happens to be their mark of distinction. Well, the mantle of Elijah was his mark of distinction. Another word for mantle would be cloak. You might even say cape. In the Bible, there are three different words translated mantle. One means rug. Another means outer garment, as in what we would call a coat. The third comes from a Hebrew word pronounced adareth, which indicates a garment conveying the concept of power. It's about wearing something that suggests position and authority, sort of like a uniform. And this is the kind of mantle Elijah would have worn. It set him apart as a prophet and spokesperson for God. When you saw somebody coming wearing this particular kind of mantle, even from a distance, you would say to yourself, this is a man of God. So when Elijah took his mantle off his body and placed it upon Elisha, it was a powerful symbolic statement. He was saying, my position now becomes your position. Who I am... What I am, now that's going to become who you are. I'm calling upon you to step into my place. We live in New Testament times, and we are not prophets like Elijah was. But like Elijah, we too should have vision for how our work will become the work of others and how our ministry will be passed on to those who come after us. We are to be looking for those who will step into our place. Grown-ups, are you looking for those who will step into your place? Are you paying attention to those who will step into place here in this church? It brings us to the second part of the lesson, the permission to follow. When I was in 11th grade, a missionary by the name of Don Hillis came to a church near where we lived. He conducted a youth rally there. My church youth group attended that rally, and that night I heard Mr. Hillis preach from Romans 12, 1 and 2, about the need to present our bodies to God as a living sacrifice. I heard that message in a deep and personal way. At the end of the message, Mr. Hillis said, If there's a young person in this room tonight who's willing to commit his life to God, to being a living sacrifice, I want that young person to stand up. I did not hesitate. I did not look around to see what my friends might do. I instantly rose to my feet and I meant with all my heart I wanted God to use me for his purpose. What happened next? After my expression of commitment, did somebody quickly run over and clamp some handcuffs on me and say, You did it. You committed yourself. From now on, you have no choice. You are, we are going to put you under lock and key as you undergo your spiritual training. From now on, you are a slave to our church. Well, of course that didn't happen. I went home that night, slept in my own bed. I got up the next day and went to basketball practice like I always did. It was up to me to live out my new commitment. It was up to me to follow through with the decision. And I did it. After graduating from high school and went to Bible college... I trained for ministry. From that night in the 11th grade, from that night forward, I've sought to be somebody who's used by God. Well, look at how Elijah wanted Elisha to come on his own free will. Verse 20 tells us that once Elijah had the mantle placed upon him, he left the oxen and asked for permission to tell his parents goodbye. And in the last line of verse 20, we find these words. Elijah says, go back. What have I done to you? Now, that sounds harsh, but it's not. What Elijah here was saying is, no problem. You want to go back and tell your parents goodbye? That's okay. You need to do what you need to do. In other words, Elisha was making it clear that he was not, or, or Elijah was making, this is going to be a tricky sermon for me, Elijah, Elisha, Elijah, Elisha. But anyway, Elijah was saying to Elisha, I'm not ordering you around here. Uh, your decision has to be Voluntary. Elisha had to respond in the way that he, Elisha, believed he needed to do. And in a moment, we will see Elisha did do what he needed to do. He did do the right thing, but it was entirely voluntary. And this illustrates another vital truth relating to ministry, and that is ministry must come from the heart, and it must be a personal choice to follow God's call. As we talk about preparing the next generation, we cannot try to press them into something or push them into something that is the mold we have picked out for them we must understand that they are to hear God's call and we are to help them do that and we are to equip them to do that if a person goes into ministry because he or she feels family pressure to do so or peer pressure to do so or any other pressure to do so it's a mistake And I know of situations where lives have been seriously messed up because this matter has been wrongly approached. For example, there have been children of missionaries who have gone into missions mainly because they knew they were expected to do so. They did not want to let their parents down. They did not want to let their friends down. And so they made this decision that was not really following their own heart. It was not really following God's call as much as it was doing what everybody sort of gave the impression they were supposed to do. These people did not do well on the mission field. They had a lot of personal problems. On the other hand, I've noticed situations where two or three children of missionaries went into missions, but one did not. And the one that did not stayed in the USA with a construction job. To a degree, this one with the secular job was looked upon as the black sheep of the family because he hadn't turned out to be a missionary like the other kids. And yet... His life was just as much a service to God as were the other lives, the other lives of the other kids. In fact, he he made money to support their mission work. He shouldn't have felt bad about his different situation because God does not call everybody to do the same thing. God does not call everyone to go overseas. God does not call everyone to step into a pulpit. There are many ways the Lord can be served. So spiritual service must be an individual decision that comes out of what we truly believe God wants us individually to do. And there's a sense here in which Elijah was saying to Elisha, don't listen to my voice here. Don't listen to a man's voice. Hear God's voice. And this would have been especially easy, in fact imperative, for Elijah to emphasize because he had just learned his own lesson the hard way about the need to listen to God's voice. Remember the message last week? God spoke to him in a still small voice. And all the problems that Elijah experienced leading up to that came because he had not been listening to God's quiet voice. So Elijah knew that Elisha needed to hear the voice of God. This had to be a call from God. Well, Elisha did know that. He did accept it. He expressed his love to his family and then fully put his attention on going in a new direction. And this brings us to the third part of the lesson, a personal commitment. After telling his parents goodbye, Elisha came back, he took the oxen he'd been working behind, he killed them. And then he cooked them. I would not have had a clue as to how to cook an oxen, but apparently he did. He cooked them up as a feast for people who were on the scene. You talk about a major commitment... This is, was his way of saying from now on, there will not be 12 yoke of oxen out in that field. There's only going to be 11 because this man has a new plan and purpose for his life. It wasn't just an enormous barbecue. It was a statement that he had fully committed himself to new ministry. It was witness to his co-workers, his neighbors, his friends, his families. There would be, or his family, there would be no turning back. The last line of verse 21 gives us a final and extremely significant piece of information about this new direction. It says, Then he set out to follow Elijah, and what? And became his servant. Elijah had just made the big commitment. I'm not going to be a farmer anymore. I'm going to be a prophet. But he was not going to start at the top of this prophet thing. He was not going to immediately have throngs of people gathering around to hear his words. Instead, he started at the bottom, which is actually a very good place to start. You learn a lot that way. He did not instantly become the new voice in Israel. He did not instantly become a counselor to kings. He did not instantly become a man of miracles. What he instantly became was the guy who carried Elijah's stuff around. And who ran Elijah's errands and who stood in the background to watch and observe as Elijah continued to do the work of a prophet of God. We need to understand the timeline here. Elijah was not done being a prophet. Even though he called Elisha and placed the mantle on him, Elisha was not taking over yet. Rather, Eli Shah was stepping into a training situation that involves serving Eli Ja. And this is another important concept for the modern church to keep in mind. And that is, training young people for ministry is not about casting upon them status and glory, it's about preparing them for service and sacrifice. The one word that describes this process is discipleship. When I graduated from high school and went off to Bible College, I did not have big scholarships or rich relatives. I had to work my way through school. I got a job mopping floors and cleaning bathrooms in the school. I did maintenance and security for the school. I thought I was doing those things to finance my education. I will admit that now and then I felt some embarrassment because I was that guy pushing the dust broom down the same hall that the other students were walking through on the way to class. I was the guy in the bathroom with the toilet brush cleaning the toilets they just used. But looking back now, I see the dust broom and the toilet brush and other tasks relating to my employment as really crucial aspects of my real education. Lessons can be learned by way of cleaning toilets and hauling Loads of trash to the incinerator. Lessons about humility and faithfulness. And just plain hanging in there. Well, this business of passing ministry to the next generation is not about making things easy for young people and dumping privilege into their laps. It's about a process wherein smaller responsibilities lead to larger responsibilities and not-so-glorious tasks prepare the way for dealing with higher-profile opportunities. It's about building lives at the same time skills are taught. It's not just about giving position. It's about equipping people to handle position. And this is what was happening with Elijah following Elijah. This was the point of this new relationship. And it brings us to the final part of our lesson. Although it's another story, I do not think we should finish our study of Elijah without knowing at least a little bit as to what happened in his and Elisha's future. We come to the portion in ministry. The ministry of Elijah continued. We've covered what we might call the sensational stories of his life, but we've not covered every detail of his life, nor have we covered every passage of Scripture that mentions him. We've given primary attention to the things on which Scriptures put primary attention, but Elijah did more things. Time went by. Years went by. For a jump into the future of Elijah and Elisha, we turn to the book of 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 1. 2 Kings 2, 1. This is where we find the time eventually came in which Elijah was to go to heaven. 2 Kings 2.1 says, When the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. So they're still traveling together. Elisha is still in the mentoring process. He's still a servant to Elijah. And they're on the way, and then this this message comes that it's time for Elijah to leave the world. And as Elisha realizes this is going to happen, he also realizes he's about to step into the role. Finally, Elisha is going to become the prophet in Israel. So a conversation develops. Verse 9 tells us about it. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Tell me, what can I do for you before I'm taken from you? Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit, Elisha replied. Please pay careful attention to that request. One thing Elisha had learned from hanging with Elijah was to think big. I hope the young people who hang around us from us can learn to think big. That's one of the things we want to inspire them to do. Elisha was asking, could I have twice as much of the spirit that has been in you? This was recognition that that Elijah had been a vessel God had used, and Elisha is thinking, could God do twice as much in my life as he did in my mentor's life? Now, in no way was this a negative or competitive thought relating to Elijah. This was not about, I want to be a better prophet than you were. This This is simply enthusiasm about responsibilities and opportunities. This is a man having faith to let his mind run wild as to what God can do. When's the last time you let your mind run wild about what God can do. Well, how did Elijah respond? He said, you've asked a difficult thing. This is verse 10. Elijah said, yet if you see me when I'm taken from you, it will be yours. Otherwise, it won't be. Which meant it's up to God to grant this request. Elijah's saying, I don't know if God's going to do it or not. But I do know, I do believe That if God allows you to see me taken up to heaven, then your request will be granted. Well, let's see how the story ends. We go to verses 11 and 12 of 2 Kings 2. As they were walking along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses appeared and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Elisha saw this and cried out, My father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. He saw it happen. So he stepped into his new role with the promise in mind. This double portion has been granted to me. He took off his old garment. He put on Elijah's mantle. His formal time of ministry began. It would be wonderful if we had time to do it, but we don't. But if we did, if you do a study of the life of Elisha, you discover Scripture tells twice as many stories of miracles performed by Elisha as it does Elijah. And you know, one of my favorite parts of it is actually there are seven recorded miracles relating to Elijah. There are 13 relating to Elisha. And you say, wait a minute, that's not twice as much. Well, then there's an interesting story further on here where Elisha dies. They bury him in sort of an open cave area. And then later on there's a battle and a guy dies, falls in, lands on Elisha's bones and is restored to life. So the 14th miracle took place. But the whole idea here is the ministry of Elijah was passed on to Elisha. And it was passed on in a multiplied manner. And isn't that what we want to see? Even greater things happening in the lives of our youth and in the future of our church than what we've seen in the past. Would it not be great if the future of this church would be a double portion of the ministry which it has already known so far? And can we look to God in faith that this might happen? And I will confess something that I think you already know. I'm not a young man. (laughs) I don't feel old, but I'm definitely not young. A couple of years ago, I was speaking with the district superintendent of a group of regional churches. I'm not sure how the subject came up, but he said, Dwayne, If you were actually looking for a pastorate, I'd have a hard time placing you because of your age. Churches don't want a guy in his 60s. They want a young pastor. They want somebody with kids who can relate to their kids. In other words, the superintendent was telling me, I'm not marketable anymore. I'm too old for most churches. But I don't worry about this. God uses me as a guest speaker and an interim pastor, and I'm delighted that I get to do that. But I don't feel called to be a full-time pastor, so I'm not looking for a pastor anyway. And as well, I'm glad that churches care about reaching the younger generation. I- I'm glad that they're interested in young people and kids. But it is a strange feeling to realize there are those who see me as past my prime, and no longer an ideal candidate for some aspects of church work. It's a strange feeling. But it turns to appreciation and even excitement with the realization that even though I'm not the go-to guy anymore, I do have something to pass on to the next generation. I can help others become the go-to guy. And I don't know if I'm saying this with the right words or not, but I'm telling you, I'm not Generation Z. I'm not a millennial. I'm not even Generation X. I'm too old for all of that, if you keep up with the distinctions for our population. But along with the ministry I have had in my generation and to my generation, there are yet ways for me to minister to the next generation. I will share and teach and train, and mentor, and minister to anyone who will listen until the day I die. So who's next in God's work? Who's next? I want to do whatever I can to prepare that person for what's next. And I hope that is a deep passion for us as a church will you please bow your heads who's next first of all you might put your thoughts on your own ministry whatever you feel god has called you to do now and you might ask yourself are you following the call of God, are you listening to the voice of God for your life now, are you looking to listen, but secondly, are you looking around to see who it is God's put near you, that you might mentor, you might somehow influence and impact for the future. I especially challenge you as a church, and I say us as a church, I feel part of you. But to pray for our youth, our youth ministry. And pray that we never allow anything to happen. That would cause us to lose sight of how important it is. That these young people are here and they're learning to live for the Lord. Let's just set our hearts doing whatever it is we're able to do as long as we're able to do it for God's glory Heavenly Father thank you for the truth of your word thank you for the young people in our lives thank you for your call upon our lives help us to be faithful until the day you call us home in Jesus name I pray Amen we have a final song to sing